This is a classic because the lead female character actually is the one who traps Don Juan. This is a classic because it is the retelling of the Don Juan myth that I didn't know I was waiting for my whole life. This is a classic because the speeches are impassioned, the scenes are investing, and there's even still moments for comedy, i.e. throwing things in bushes. (laughs) This is our history. This is our legacy. And welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcasts. We're your hosts. I'm Gagarin, ensemble member, curator, and lots of other things. <laughs> and me, Sky Pagan, ensemble member and curator of Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today we are diving into The Stone Host by Lesia Ukrenka. Now, if you go to our website, expandthecanon.com, which you totally should, you will find the following pitch for this play. If you always wished that you could see Lady Macbeth take on Don Juan, consider this reimagining of the Don Juan myth from a celebrated Ukrainian author. Donya Anna is looking to transcend her position in society, and an ineffectual Don Juan might just be her ticket out, inciting an impassioned game of cat and mouse. Told in the Spanish Golden Age tradition, this plays masquerade balls, moody cemeteries, and sword fights will keep an audience in joyful suspense until its surprising conclusion, with complexity, romance, and a modern-sounding verse, Ukrainica examines the power struggles that still hold sway in our relationships today. Giggs, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts about it. You texted me some of them the other day when you were reading the ending for the first time, but I'm very excited to hear them in more depth. So tell me what you tell me what you yeah, like about this play. Oh my god, this play. Well, so, I mean, I, I've been a fan of Leslie since last year when I read another one of her plays that was in the running. But what I love about this play, and I think is more also about like her style of writing, she's really good at taking these already established format and putting her own very specific, very intelligent, dark, compelling twist on them. You can talk a lot about a lot of the themes of like power and all of that are definitely there and they're present and it's interesting. But what I loved the most in this play were a lot of little moments. This play is a drama and does and can come across as very like dark and intense, especially on the page. But there are so many opportunities for comedy, I think, in a lot of ways, especially mm-hmm. with the characters of the court like Doña Coercion and some of the other Donas mm-hmm. who are like out and about. Like the scene at the masquerade is probably my favorite scene in the play because there's mm-hmm. so many fun tidbits and moments. And also for every like funny moment, there is something grounding it back into this very sort of serious world. I'm thinking about in particular, there's one moment where Anya is like, talking to a knight and he's like oh well like don't you love the wine and she's like it's all right and then she just throws her glass into the bushes yes 
I love that moment too. Which is hilarious to me because then that gets echoed again later when Don Juan is sharpening his rapier in the graveyard and then he notices that he's nicked it and he just throws his rapier away. <laughs> like They're very well matched. <laughs> they are very well matched. And I, well, so that's the other thing too, is that I love how it's like he sort of slowly wins her over, mm-hmm. but he doesn't win her over with the whole, oh, elope with me and we'll go live somewhere and we'll be happy mm-hmm. and we'll be free, which I feel like you see that freaking trope so often. Anna's literally like, no. Like, sounds like fun, but I'm good. Thanks. It's really compelling. She's such an interesting character, right? Because she's like, she's both willing to play the game of this world and also recognizes the toxicity inherent to it. She has all these like really complicated moments where she's like absolutely being very pragmatic about the whole thing of like, I am marrying this man, the commander for his money and his position and what it will get me. And if the commander needs me to like do these political machinations, that is what I signed up for. And that is my job. And no, I'm not going to run away with this man because that would ruin our position and our power. And so it feels very pragmatic, but at the same time, She's also like not happy about it. An incredibly passionate person. Clearly has this connection with Don Juan and clearly like feels as trapped by this world as he does. Her way of handling that though, whereas like Don Juan is like, fuck the system, screw this, let's dip out of this system kind of approach. Anna is like, no, the way you handle a corrupt system is by becoming powerful yourself so that then you're you are protected and can control your own destiny that way. So they just have like these two very different viewpoints. Also with those two viewpoints, that's like an incredibly, I think, privileged position from which Don Juan is approaching this as like a male in the society Mm -hmm. that he's like, oh yeah, we'll just run away and it'll be fine. And it's like, yeah, actually no. Or like, let's just like go out and take a walk. It's 3am and it's like, no, you can do that, but I'm not going to do that because it's dangerous to me and to my position. And what I really also love about her is that like, In the beginning, you have her like really fighting against this idea that she's going to, by marrying the commander, be trapped in this stone castle. But it's really fun to watch in that twist, in that first scene between her and the commander in the beginning of Act 4, where he kind of reveals to her that the potential to be on the throne is a very real course of the future for Mm -hmm. them. And I feel like that's such a cool moment where you see her kind of pivot in like a, oh, I'm actually not trapped in this stone castle. I've been elevated. Yes. And I can use this to my advantage, which is what becomes the crux of her argument to Don Juan at the dinner party. This is what I love of the Lady M thing, that comparison we're drawing of like somebody who is like, we are both smart and capable and the system is corrupt anyway. Mm. So why not try and take advantage of where we are and what we have? And there's something slightly sinister about it because there's like an inherent feeling of like, oh, these people would probably make moral compromises to get to where they are. But there's also this like, they're both really smart people. And there is this self-protective thing going on. The scene between the two of them at the end is like such a meeting of equals, which is compelling. Yeah. And also something that I really appreciate. It's two people who are very much in love or at least have a strong degree of attraction towards each other. And also they're having like this kind of philosophical argument. Yeah. It's so fun to watch her because every single time she's got 
a comeback that is well thought out. And very rarely does she make an argument from an emotional place. Don Juan is often the one who is arguing from his emotional center, which is a really interesting shakeup of how you would normally see these things. And it's also, I think, what makes this such a fun reinvention. I remember mm. reading this play for the first time, and for like the first three quarters of it, you're like, oh, this is a Don Juan story. I have read this play before. And then I remember getting to last quarter or so and being like, holy hell, she is completely flipping this thing on its head. It's 80% of a play that feels very familiar of like, oh, Spanish golden age Don Juan. I know this trope. It's written in verse, we should also say, which is like very sexy. It has everything you want in like that big Spanish golden age type drama. We've got rapier fights. We've got cemeteries. We've got big masquerade balls and people in disguise. And it's like sexy and funny and dramatic and all those things. And then things just get weird. She does love to get weird with it. Like this particular playwright really loves to take the thing that might be kind of normal and then suddenly just run it 10,000 yards out in a direction to its nth degree. One other thing I wanted to touch on, I hope to God that it was Leslie who was writing all the stage directions. Because as I mentioned, the throwing the things in bushes being a common stage direction was a favorite of mine. But also so many of them were so descriptive and beautiful. There was one that I noted that's the scene between Don Juan and Dolores. And the stage direction right before her line says, ecstatic like a martyr undergoing torture. Mm. And also, I know we have been talking about Don Juan and Dolores and Ana mostly. But this play makes room for what could be a really, really solid cast. Because all of the side characters, the court people, are hilarious. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's also Don Juan's servant, but he's also like funny and quippy and has all of these moments in there as well. So like you could really do this with like a solid cast and everyone would have fun stuff to do. Absolutely. Do this play, cast all your favorite actors. They will have a great time. Get a great director, get a great stage set designer. Oh my God. Yeah. Make some people step out of mirrors. Make some people step out of freaking mirrors, man. <laughs> So Sky, Lady Macbeth, and Don Juan teaming up together, crossover that we've always wanted and wished for. <laughs> what goes down? Oh my God, what goes down? What doesn't go down is the real <laughs> question. So at the start of this play, we are opening up in Sevilla, the city in Spain, and specifically in a cemetery, Spooky. So we open up on these two women in a cemetery. Dolores, who is in mourning, she's wearing all black, and she's there to visit her parents' grave because they've recently passed away. And she is accompanied by Doña Ana, who is her best friend. And she's there basically as emotional support for Dolores and also to get in some good gossip sessions away from prying ears. So they start having a little dish about what's going on in both of their respective lives. Anna has been engaged recently to this very well-connected commander in the Spanish army. He's very favored at court. It's like a very good match. Yeah, but he's kind of boring. Well, yes, exactly. And that sort of <laughs> is Dolores is asking her about the commander and she's being kind of like, yeah, he's fine. It's clear she's not raving about this guy, mm. but she's much more interested in what's going on with Dolores, who clearly has something she wants to talk about. And boy, does Dolores have a secret to tell us, which is that she has, surprise, been engaged since childhood 
to Don Juan. Yes, that one. This was a planned match between her parents and Don Juan's parents um, from childhood. Don Juan has now been exiled for years because of his debaucheries. Everything we know about the Don Juan myths holds up in this retelling. He's famous little man slut just running around <laughs> with all kinds of people. Man slut. I love that. Correct. Definition of. And so Dolores has stuck by him through all these years. And in particular, there was an instance in their past where he had been in a fight with some guy whose woman he had wronged or whatever. Dolores had nursed him back to health and had given him one of her rings, which he swore to always wear as a sign of like, despite his quote unquote infidelities to her, he's like still faithful to her and, and they still consider themselves promised to each other at some point in the future, but he's been in exile. So he is not around except surprise. He is around. They're in the cemetery talking about him and who appears, but the man himself, Don Juan. And he also in my favorite Jack in the box style ever does it popping out of a mausoleum. Yes. And just like scares the shit out of both of them, (laughs) which is just incredibly, incredibly chaotic. Extremely chaotic. But we should say Don Juan is not here to see Dolores. He's actually here to see another woman um, in the town. Very true. But he starts chatting with the two women. He's surprised to see them. Dolores is sort of like emotionally overwhelmed. And Anna obviously is much more like, who's this guy? I have heard so much about him and is much more comfortable talking to him. They start chatting and Anna suggests that he come to the masquerade ball that her family is throwing that night in honor of her relationship with this fancy commander. So Don Juan is like, I will come to this fancy ball because this beautiful woman has invited me, despite the fact that Dolores is also there witnessing all of this, and says yes. So the commander at this point, the stuffy commander, arrives to escort the ladies back home. And the moment they're gone, Don Juan tells a servant, basically, like, forget that lady I came to see. I'm going to this ball. I'm much more interested in seeing what happens there with these two women. So then we go to this ball. It's a big masquerade ball. There's a bunch of dancing. Everybody is in mask, except for notably Anna and uh, her fiance, the commander. So everybody else is masked. This will be important later. And Anna is flirting up a storm. Anna is dancing with all of the knights. She literally mm. like lines up these men and is like, this is the order I will dance with you with. And she's she's getting down with all them. But also my favorite thing is that Anna's flirting style, this entire scene is just like negging. Like Anna lives to flirt by roasting and these knights are all just being such little babies about it. They're like obsessed with her. They're like, yes, I don't know. It's very mommy, please bully me next kind of vibes. (laughs) 100%. So she's having a grand old time, but it's very clear also that her parents and her fiance, the commander, are not approving of this. Her fiance several times is like, why are you doing this? And she's like, oh, it's a custom in Sevilla. You just don't know because you're not from here. Meanwhile, Don Juan arrives in disguise as everybody else's masked ball. And he's dressed up as like this musician and he puts on this big musical number, shows up with a guitar and basically serenades Anna. Um, Again, the commander is less than pleased about this and is like, who is this guy? And Anna's like, oh, he's just some guy. He's a musician. Don't worry (laughs) about it. Don Juan offers to fight the commander and the commander is like basically like you're not worth my time this is beneath me Dolores also there in disguise sees this whole 
uh, altercation and stops Don Juan from going after the commander. So there's some tensions brewing. Complications, to Mm. be sure. Well, you know, it's every prom party. Very high school. Extremely high school. It's not a party until someone cries in the bathroom. (laughs) So... Some time passes. We skip forward in time a bit, and now we're with Don Juan in his exile, and he gets a surprise visit from Dolores, who is dressed up even more formally than usual and says that, surprise, she's managed to secure a pardon for him from the royal court. But the price of this pardon is that she become a nun to atone for his Don Juan's sins. So basically, she's paying off his moral debt by joining the church. um, So they can't get married. This is one of those things where he, you know, he has sort of like, he has this big emotional scene where he's like, I'm overwhelmed by the sacrifice and like, you're the best person to ever live. But it's also sort of clear of like, she's doing this because she loves him, but also she's doing this because it's very clear at this point to her that he is never going to care for her the way that she cares for him. It's very tragic. It's very like self-sacrificing. I mean, it's, it's complicated, right? Cause it's like mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's like she is getting out in the only way that she's capable of. And I think that is also speaking to this conversations about power of like Dolores has been engaged to this one guy since childhood. There's not like an out of that. You know what I mean? Like this is a world where marriage is a social and economic contract. That is your, yeah ticket to literally everything. So if she can't marry this guy, it's not that many options available. Her parents are dead. She doesn't have anybody looking out for her. She's pretty much beholden on whatever wealth she was left by her parents and then the good graces of other people around her, unless she can get married or find stability somewhere else like in the church. And I also do think there is a thing of her recognizing that what I can do in this situation is give this man his freedom back, Mm. which is a really powerful gift. But then also he receives it in a really beautiful way. Like we were talking about how a lot of this, especially initially comes off as just like a plain old Don Juan adaptation But he's very sensitive and it's very clear that even though he isn't super loyal to Dolores, could be doing better about that, my guy. He like really cares about her. And when she tells him that he's going to do this, he's like, oh my God. The loyalty thing reminded me. Don Juan wears this ring that Dolores gave him and Anna asks him for it at the masquerade ball and he won't give it to her. And it's this whole thing where he's like, I would anything else, but don't ask me for this. So there's, there is this like weird, like tenderness that he does. It's like clear that he's like you know he's not attracted to her in that way but it's like they've known each other since childhood they have this very sort of intense tenderness in their relationship that is really unique and beautiful and Dolores says this in the very first scene where Anna is like you know he's sleeping with half the country and Dolores is like yeah but he's engaged to me which in some ways is like this very modern interpretation of what it means to be in relationship to other people of like hey there's a lot of different kinds of fidelity and there's a lot of different kinds of relationships and you know it's not all about this sort of traditional sense of monogamy. It's giving very modern polyamory with like your ace partner. <laughs> <or> like... 
<laughs> and something like that. Not only is it a matter of loyalty, but it's a matter of autonomy. Mm-hmm. She's letting him have his autonomy. And in a way, he also then like lets her be free to have hers when she decides to give up her life to go be a nun. Really just so much to say about power and so much to say about like gender roles and power dynamics in relationship. It, if you have limited options available to you, this is also her getting out of this sort of toxic love triangle she's breaking Um, the simp cycle exactly um so he's very overwhelmed by the sacrifice and is like oh by the way how's anna your friend that i met that one time again jay casually toxic jay casually just asking about anna jay casually dolores obviously sees through this and says that she's married now to that stuffy commander but clearly unhappy so newly unaffianced and I mean, not that it was holding him back before, (laughs) but now fully not held back and with a fresh pardon to re-enter the city, Don Juan goes off to see Anna. So now we join Anna and she is at court. She's living with her husband, the commander, and clearly, despite her newly acquired position and wealth and power, like she's literally, I mean, she comes from a wealthy family, we should say, but like the commander's got the money, the money and the influence and the connection yeah. is the big one. He is, they have this whole scene where he's like basically saying like, I am more or less second in line to the throne. And there's not much standing in the commander's way of being the ruler of state potentially someday, potentially through dubious means. But part of the reason it's clear he was interested in Anna is she is the perfect partner for that sort of machinations. She is smart. She is wealthy. She is ruthless in her own right. And also he notes that she can go toe to toe with the other ladies of the court who have been trying to like oust her sort of in this point, which is what you get. Exactly. So we open up on this scene with the commander basically sort of scolding her and saying like, you can take these women. You need to stand up for yourself. This is why I married you. I need you to be my partner in this. And Anna, it's clear she's feeling, despite all these things, a little stifled by this world. Um, And she's clearly not in love with this man. But she also says that she knew what she was signing up for and she wanted the power and the position that he could give her. And so she basically acquiesces. So then the commander leaves and she's alone and somebody shows up with flowers for Anna. Interesting. She wasn't expecting flowers. They're red flowers, the flowers of passion and love. So she's like, absolutely not take these flowers away. It's noted that they are Grenadilla flowers, which are red and are flowers of passion because they come from the passion fruit. But in specifically Spanish Catholicism, they represent the passion of the Christ, specifically talking about his brief moments before uh, crucifixion. Interesting. And it's like rumored that when his blood was falling on the ground, Grenadilla flowers were what sprung up. And that's why they're red. That's why they're red. And that's why it's the passion. And I, I think there's a lot of fun foreshadowing. It feels very intentional to be like, oh, these are specifically Grenadilla flowers. They're not just like ooh, red roses. No. DJ's getting real with this. Absolutely. And it's like clear that Anna understands the message too. There's this whole scene where she's like, Grenadilla flowers, absolutely not. No, 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 mm-hmm. no, no, no. But despite her trying to clear these flowers away before she can do that, Don Juan 
jumps through the window. <laughs> the thing about Don Juan is he loves an entrance. He does. And he also loves enlisting the servants too, because yes. her servant is like, oh, should I open the window? And she's like, just open the blinds, I guess. Like, don't open the whole window. The servant's like, oh, open the whole ass window? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let me just make it as wide open as possible. And Don Juan takes <laughs> advantage. So yes, Don Juan appears. And now, obviously, Having broken up with Dolores, he is free to declare his passion for Anna. He basically throws himself at her feet and says, I sent you the flowers. I adore you. Let's run away together. We should leave this court. We should leave the city. Let's get out. Let's go tonight. And Anna is overwhelmed by this whole thing. But before anything can really happen, who should re-enter but the commander? <gasps> Obviously, dun, dun, now dun. the commander is like, okay, now I'm going to mm. fight this guy. So they have a big old sword fight and Don Juan kills the commander. <gasps> So all of this has happened zero to 60 very quickly. But instead of having a big episode about it, Anna is very clear and says, you need to leave right now. Don Juan wants Anna to run away with him. He's like, now's our chance. And she says, absolutely not. If they find him here and we're both gone, we're both going to be exiled. We're going to lose all our money. We're going to lose our position. It doesn't make sense. You need to go right now. I'm going to stay and say that there was a burglary attempt and that the commander was killed trying to protect me. So she manages to convince Don Juan to leave. A little bit of time later, Anna has managed to spin this whole thing. So she was right. She manages to convince everybody that it was a terrible burglary gone wrong. So she's now held on to her position to an extent. So she is seen as this, the tragic widow, but it's still tenuous. You know, there's, as we hinted at in that first scene with the commander, this is court. Politics go in and out. And it's clear that people are waiting for her to slip up. So she is holding on to her position, but barely. So she is out and Don Juan appears once again and says, you know, I want to be with you. I, let's run away together. I love you. Let's make this work. And Anna this time is, again, practical about it. She says, no, we can't run away together. But what I can do, I think, is make it so that this relationship is legitimized. So what we're going to do is you're going to come to this fancy dinner party that I'm throwing, and I'm going to introduce you to everybody basically as my protector and hopefully usher him into the court that way. Dinner party time. We're now at this fancy banquet with Anna and all of the fancy court people and overlooking very symbolically throughout this entire meal is this giant portrait of the late commander, literally watching the events of the feast. He's just hanging up there. So there's this big fancy dinner party and there's all these politics going on. They're sitting at this long table and Anna's at one end and her guests are like, we are going to leave the commander's old spot at the other end of the table open as a sign of respect because this guy just died. And then Don Juan shows up and just sits in that seat. And so there's all this tension happening. He sits at the table. They all continue their meal and Anna does what she says. She basically says, this guy is going to be my new protector. He's going to step up to the plate and fill the position that the commander left. And folks recognize this, but again, it feels tenuous. And so everybody, all the guests sort of somewhat accept this and recognize Don Juan as part of the group now, but they also leave very early and there's just sort of like abrupt ending to the night. And so now Don Juan is here with Anna. Their relationship has been theoretically legitimized. Happy ending. Well, maybe not. So 
Don Juan now, left alone with Anna, realizes that in legitimizing their relationship, he has now trapped himself, really, but both of them in this court world. He's used to living this free and wild lifestyle, being able to go and come as he pleases, being able to leave, not being subject to the whims of the court politics and all these things about polite society. And he hates that because he's now recognizing that he's stuck in it if he wants to be with Anna. And Anna, meanwhile, argues that what kind of freedom could they really have anyway if they just ran off together? They wouldn't have any means of surviving. They wouldn't have any money. They wouldn't have any connections. She has this incredible collection of speeches where she's basically arguing like, what kind of freedom is it if you're always on the run? You're going to be alone no matter what. So you might as well just accumulate this fortress of power where even if you're isolated from the world, you at least have position and money and power to hold on to. And she's basically inviting him to join her and really step into this position that the commander had held in this world of somebody who is in a leadership role and has a lot of respect from power, other powerful people. This is that Lady Macbeth Don Juan argument. It's this like incredible scene where they're both sort of arguing like what is power really and who holds it in this world and what does it mean to give up that power for somebody else and can you do that successfully so they have this big argument and Anna eventually seems to be winning Don Juan over she gets him to put on the commander's old ceremonial coat and helmet and is basically saying like see you're him now you're you are this thing you have this power we have this opportunity we can be the greatest thing of all time you just have to accept it but Don Juan looks in the mirror at himself in the commander's clothing and does not see this vision of himself in the commander's clothes and stepping up to the plate, he literally sees the commander staring back at him through the mirror and then twist. The actual commander literally steps out of the mirror, kills Don Juan just by like touching him. And Anna throws herself down at the mirror commander's feet, just absolutely overwhelmed by everything that has happened. And and that's, that's the, the end, end of, of the play. Fucking play. <laughs> I mean, the end of this play made me poop my pants because I was not expecting that. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, we have this sort of, again, established motif of like people appearing where they shouldn't be and Don Juan making an entrance and all these things and people sort of appearing out of nowhere. And there's this all this ominous imagery of mausoleums and statues. And again, it's one of those things where I think it could be up to interpretation, whether it's like, does the commander actually step out of the mirror and kill Don Juan? Or is it like Don Juan is like so haunted by killing the commander and everything that happened with Dolores and everything that's gone down that he just like sort of has, you know, some sort of attack and dies. Oh, I feel like that's so much less fun. It's definitely a ghost. <laughs> it's a big like Banquo's ghost kind of moment mm. though, right? It's like, you know, is this in their minds? Is it real? Is it... Um, is it like a literal person come back to life? Is it the sort of like memory of what you did to wrong this person that is eating you alive? Crazy ending though. Um, and like a super sexy stage moment that I would love to see happen. So if you're interested in putting on this play, please do because I want to see that. History. So Leslie was clearly ahead of her time and was a badass. I was calling off for Ben a girl boss, and I was like, Leslie is oh not my a God. girl boss. She's a badass. <laughs> no, she's like official badass. Absolutely. So I, I actually don't know that much about her. Can you please tell me more? Oh my God, I will tell you so much about her. I love her. This woman is 
fascinating person. Lesya Ukrainka is actually her pen name. Mm. She was born with the name, and I apologize also, I do not speak Ukrainian. I am doing my best with these names. So please let us know if this is incorrect. Lesya Ukrainka is actually her pen name. She was born under the name of Larisa Petrivna Kosa. She was born in 1871, uh, what is now Ukraine, but what was then under Russian occupation. And she was the daughter of two devoted intellectuals. Her dad was this wealthy activist who was very active and interested in the preservation of the Ukrainian language and culture under Tsarist Russia. There's a lot of suppression happening of the Ukrainian language and, you know, traditional Ukrainian culture. So there's like this underground movement of like preserve the language, preserve the traditional literature and the cultural traditions and all that. And so her family is very active in this. And her mother as well is this literary figure and teacher of Ukrainian language as well. This background of activism and literature is what she's raised in. Mm. And her parents primarily educated themselves, which is a big deal, so that they could teach their children to read and write and translate Ukrainian, which was forbidden in the public school system at the time. You weren't taught Ukrainian in schools, you were only taught Russian. So again, sort of a radical act. From a young age, Ukrainka was writing a lot and showed a proclivity towards it. And so her mother would actually submit her young child daughter's work to literary journals, but she did it under the pseudonym Lesia Ukrenka, which approximately translates as Lesia Ukrainian woman. A little bit of like a political joke there happening while also protecting her anonymity in this time when Ukrainian language is being suppressed. So this is the birth of her pen name and she stuck to it. Another shaping thing from her childhood is at the age of 10, she contracted tuberculosis. Oh no. And this would affect her health for the rest of her life. But when she first contracted it, she was bedridden and continued to like have flare-ups where she would be bedridden for extended periods of time. And during this isolation, she turned to literature and to writing. So she was reading a ton. She was writing a ton. And, you know, this is when she's a kid and she's reading well above her age and reading widely. And of course, she has these parents that are encouraging her to read and write in her native language and providing her with all this Ukrainian language literature and things like that. Her first publications came in 1884. And we should note at that point, you know, she's still a teenager. She is a kid when she's getting published and where Ukrainian language literature is a little bit less suppressed. So it's published in a portion of the area that's under Austro-Hungary control. So it's the reason she was able to get this literature published. She also worked on some translations with her brother. She's very close with her brother, Mikhailo Kosak. And they went on a little bit later to found this organization called the Pleiads, which was this literary circle of like-minded people devoted to forwarding the cause of Ukrainian literature, preserving Ukrainian literature, and translating foreign classics into Ukrainian. So again, these themes of activism, of cultural preservation, of translation, of literature, just baked into her worldview. And the group would meet in secret. They're the secret society, and they would prepare three collections of poetry and prose for publication. And all of them were banned by Russian censors because, you know. We love a secret book club. (laughs) 
We love a secret book club. They would continue to meet for about five years. And at this time, Ukrainka's first poetry collection was published. And she would go on to publish two more poetry collections over the next few years. After all of this poetry, she began to turn to drama. She went on to publish a myriad of dramas and dramatic poems, often combining her political interests and love of world literature to speak about modern issues in these like very, as we've noted, very stylized, very theatrical terms. Mm. So, you know, clearly somebody that has a lot of political interests. We should say also she was a devoted Marxist and was politically opposed to Russian czarism throughout her entire life. She translated the Communist Manifesto into Ukrainian. Oh my God, Comrade Leslie. <laughs> Comrade Leslie, for sure. And so she's like this really transgressive figure. We see this in her writing. Clearly, she is exploring themes of power and autonomy and also borrowing from all these tropes of classic literature from all over the world. I mean, we see it in the Spanish Golden Age borrowing that's happening in the Stonehouse, but in her other plays we've read as well, there's clear hints at other traditions. This is clearly somebody who has a real love of literature and storytelling and is very well read from a lot of different cultural and dramatic traditions and borrows from them and reinvents them. Certainly. The play that I mentioned earlier of hers that I love that you've heard me talk about a lot Mm -hmm. um the orgy reads very greek yes it's very greek in a lot of its like structure and in its setting but then it's similarly to the stone house has this incredible twist ending that's very ukrainka reading now both of these plays even though they are both very very different the orgy is not written in verse it's much shorter but they're both very distinctly her style, which I think is only just the hallmark of an incredible writer. Absolutely. She's a very curious writer. She's borrowing from all these traditions. She's investigating all these traditions and really like excavating what can be newly mined in these themes and structures that are familiar to us. Mm. Clearly coming from a place of fascination and love and curiosity for all these different types of literature, which is just so beautiful, honestly. So yeah, she's like this very smart, curious writer. She has all these political beliefs. She wrote a lot of political essays in addition to her plays and her translation work. It actually led to her getting arrested in 1907. She was released pretty quickly, but remained under czarist watch for the rest of her life, which sadly was a very short rest of her life. She actually passed away in 1913, so just in her 40s, due to complications from that childhood tuberculosis, which she never really recovered from. Now, obviously at that time, the treatments weren't so great. So she she died very young. Despite her shortened life, she was this incredibly prolific and bold figure in the Ukrainian literature scene, in the activist scene under Tsarist Russia. She wrote tons of prose pieces. She wrote essays. She wrote poetry. She wrote dramas, translations. She was active politically. So she's like really somebody who just had this vibrant and active life and has been preserved as a significant figure in modern Ukrainian literature and history. She is featured on the 200 Horivnia banknote. So, you know, clearly somebody that is celebrated at least in circles of Ukraine to this day, but obviously worth knowing more widely and feels appropriate that as somebody who would like in her lifetime was so curious about different theatrical traditions and sharing theatrical resources across cultural and country lines, it feels appropriate to introduce her to 
more Western and English speaking audiences because she was incredible. I feel like if you want some of that good sort of staunch Eastern European style drama and characters and intensity, she's a good one to go for. I mean, I think one of the things that is so exciting about her, as we've noted, is she has like this real breadth of style mm-hmm. in her wheelhouse. And so like you could kind of find a Lesia Ukrainka play for a number of slots in your season. Oh, yeah. I think she would be widely applicable in a very creative way. I would love to read more of her work. She's a very strong writer. Her verse and her prose is just very tight and beautiful. Oh, yeah. It just flowed so easily. And I think a lot of times, especially with like assumed classics like Shakespeare and Moyer, when you were encountering their verse, you really have to kind of work at it to get into the rhythm and the flow. Mm-hmm. But it's It's incredibly accessible. It's very accessible and also just funny and beautiful. And like we said, just like really well written. Mm. She's just a very rigorous and clear writer. And all around, just as you said, badass. (laughs) (laughs) Word. Love it. So here is a recording from our filmed scene from The Stone Host by Leslia Ukrenka featuring ensemble member Tara Cheney, directed by Raphael Massey. Is it so bad an ending that you gain as well as the princess a strong, proud fortress? Why should we think of it as a prison, not a nest, an airy for a pair of eagles? I have built this nest myself upon the crag. Toil, torment, terror, I have conquered all and I have grown accustomed to my height. Why should you not also dwell on the summit? Is it not better that we join our forces to dominate the mountain with our strength? I have climbed it with great difficulty, but you... You only have to take the ring from your little finger and give it me. Enough words and empty speeches, Juan. What does it mean, hypocrisy? Admit that you have not always acted quite sincerely. Sometimes you happen to pretend a little as to attract some lovely lady's eyes. So why are you so conscientious now? Is it perhaps the aim is too high for you? So far you have not learned what it means to have power to have not only one right hand alone, but thousands armed and ready for the fray who have power both to strengthen and destroy universal thrones. And win them too. And a big thank you to director of photography, Jenny Desrosiers, sound designer, Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager, Jessica Fournier. You can find this scene and much more on our Instagram page. And a big, big thank you to our bestie, James LaBella, who did a lot of the dramaturgy for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This Is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. You can learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit that share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, a professor, someone you haven't spoken to in a while who you want to get drinks with and talk about this amazing play. For more more info on what's up next in our wacky little world of plays, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. 
on Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donation at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Gagarin. And I'm Sky Pagan. Bye. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>